morning, Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington. Today is Friday, March the 4th. And here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. The U.S. extends sanctions against Zimbabwe under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. Is that the government of Emerson Nangagwa is behaving much in the same way as, as his predecessor and suppressing opposition. That is uh, all the reason the United States needs to continue these sanctions. That's VOA White House correspondent explaining what this means for Zimbabwe's economy and its leadership. And Ugandan legislators ask the government to come up with plans for evacuating citizens trapped in the Ukraine-Russia conflict. I pray that government, especially through Minister of Foreign Affairs, briefs parliament on the total number of Ugandans trapped in Ukraine and Russia. That is Ugandan legislator Muwada Nkunyinji. And Ethiopia's Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed calls for restraint in the Ukraine conflict, noting his country's own suffering after a year of war. We'll have those stories plus sports coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, President Joe Biden has extended sanctions against Zimbabwe under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, writing that the actions and policies by President Munangagwa's government are contributing to the breakdown in the rule of law while posing an unusual and extraordinary threat to U.S. foreign policy. The announcement made in a letter from the White House to Congress says that President Emerson Munangagwa has not instituted political and economic reforms that would warrant the termination of existing sanctions. The sanctions target over 100 entities and individuals in Zimbabwe, including to leaders of the ruling ZANU-PF, the military and government institutions. The renewal comes a few weeks after the European Union renewed its own set of sanctions against Zimbabwe, citing continued human rights violations and suppression of political opponents. Anita Powell is VOA's White House correspondent. She joins me via phone to explain how the International Emergency Economic Powers Act works and how it could impact Zimbabwe's economy and its leadership. The International Emergency Economic Powers Act, which is quite a mouthful, it deals with what the White House says is an unusual and extraordinary threat to the foreign policy of the United States, constituted by the actions and policies of certain members of the government of Zimbabwe and other persons to undermine Zimbabwe's democratic processes or institutions. So what does this statement from the White House to Congress say, and and how does it uh, affect President Nangagwa and his leadership? What this does is this continues the sanctions that have been in place for now almost 18 years. And the White House cites a few things that have happened that, that makes them want to continue these sanctions. They talk about how government security services have, quote, routinely intimidated and violently repressed citizens. Now, you may recall a few weeks ago at an opposition rally led by Nelson Chamisa, the, the opposition leader, police deployed tear gas and dogs on opposition supporters. I mean, that's just one example of, of this sort of intimidation and repression that we're seeing in Zimbabwe, according to the U.S. And we, ha- we have critical by-elections coming up in Zimbabwe later this month on, I believe it's March 26th, if I'm not incorrect. And so right now, the what, what appears to be happening, according to human rights observers, is that the government of Emerson Nangagwa is behaving much 
in the same way as as his predecessor and suppressing opposition. Mm. And that is that is uh, all the reason the United States needs to continue these sanctions. Now, the, the White House writes in this letter that the actions and policies of certain members of the government of Zimbabwe undermine the country's uh, democratic processes and, quote, pose an unusual and extraordinary threat to the foreign policy of the United States. Do, do we know precisely what the sanctions are and how they are implemented? So these sanctions are meant to be sanctions against members of Zimbabwe's elite and inner circle that prevent them from basically enriching themselves uh, and using havens and and, you know, hiding their money. But what they have done in effect, the Zimbabwean government argues, and this seems to be a pretty universal argument, is that they have really hurt the people of Zimbabwe. Um, And this is yet another reason, incidentally, that Zimbabwe voted to abstain at the UN vote, because their argument is that sanctions just directly hurt the people. Now, the U.S. response to that would be actually if Yes, sanctions are supposed to hurt the overall economy, but if they disproportionately affect the people and you're really trying to target the elite, that tells you something in your economy is a bit broken, doesn't it? That tells you your economy doesn't have room for people to to build wealth in a normal way without political bias. So it is interesting that the U.S. says that these institutions, quote, continue to pose an unusual and extraordinary threat to the foreign policy of the United States. And how has the government of Zimbabwe previously reacted to these sanctions? And what kind of impact are the sanctions having on the on the local economy or even the local politics as the country prepares for uh, by-elections later this month? Yeah, I mean, I would expect Zimbabwe's government to react in the same way, in a, in a way that's consistent with how mm-hmm. they reacted to all of the imposition of these sanctions, not just from the EU, which also renewed their sanctions about two weeks ago against Zimbabwe. I mean, in the middle of this, you're looking at, what, 9 million people in a country that at independence was the breadbasket of Africa, had so much hope. It was the last country to be freed from the grip of, of colonialism And it is a country that still to this day has some of the highest literacy levels in all of Africa, that has a pretty robust education system, even though teachers are currently on strike. This is a country with a lot going for it. And the the governing bodies of Zimbabwe would blame a lot of their lack of progress on sanctions. But the U.S. would probably fire back and say, no, it's your failure to democratize. And this Mm. is a worrying argument that I think we're going to see. Uh, between the U.S. and Zimbabwe and also U.S. allies in Zimbabwe. That was VOA White House correspondent Anita Paul. Ethiopia's Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has called for restraint in the Ukraine conflict, noting his country's own suffering after a year of war. The statement notably did not condemn Russia for invading its neighbor. Gelmo Dawit reports from Addis Ababa. Many countries over the past week have condemned Russian invasion of Ukraine. Ethiopia refrained from joining the chorus Thursday, issuing an official statement in which it called for restraint from both parties in the Ukraine crisis. The statement from the office of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed said, Ethiopia is concerned by what it termed the escalation of rhetoric that is intensifying the conflict. It called on all parties to find pathways towards reaching an end to hostilities and noted that Ethiopia's own war in the Tigray region has devastated communities and families and has damaged the country's economy. However, the statement did not condemn any entity for the conflict in Ukraine. 
A day earlier, Ethiopia also abstained from voting on a United Nations General Assembly vote that called on Russia to remove its troops from Ukraine. Ethiopian officials have not explained the decision to avoid condemning Moscow. However, Ethiopia had close ties with the Soviet Union during the 14-year rule of Mengistu Helemaria, and a number of Ethiopian students are currently studying in Russia. Other Ethiopian students were in Ukraine when the invasion began, and the Ethiopian embassy there says 25 had been evacuated as of Wednesday. Gelmodavit, for VOA News, Addis Ababa. Ugandan legislators have asked the government to come up with plans to evacuate citizens trapped in the Ukraine-Russia conflict, which has claimed hundreds of lives and displaced thousands of others. Reporter Mugume Davis Rwakarinji has more from Kampala. National Resistance Movement legislator Theodore Sechkubo says disturbed by the events in Ukraine and the treatment of Ugandans trapped there. I was perturbed when I saw the government forces stopping Africans and other nationals from leaving Ukraine, preferring their nationals to be the ones to exit from that war-stricken country. Sechkubo says Ugandan government should not stand by as Ugandans suffer in the Ukraine. Shadow Minister of Foreign Affairs, Muadan Kunyingi, agrees. I pray that government, especially through Minister of Foreign Affairs, briefs Parliament on the total number of Ugandans trapped in Ukraine and Russia, and the measures being undertaken by government to ensure safety and evacuation of Ugandans caught up in the conflict. Last month, Russia invaded neighbor Ukraine with large-scale military hardware. The latter has been hit by sanctions by the U.S. government, United Kingdom, and the European Union. Sechkubo says the warring parties should cease hostilities to prevent further losses of people and property. I witnessed the carnage, the destruction of the Orthodox cathedrals and the civilization as a result of that war. It is estimated that more than 100 Ugandans, especially students, live in Ukraine. On Monday, Uganda's security minister, General Jim Huez, told parliament that the government will come up with a detailed plan on how to evacuate citizens who are trying to leave. Kenya's government said they had secured safe passage for nationals in Ukraine to seek refuge in Poland, Slovakia, Hungary and Romania. Many Africans have complained that Ukrainian and Polish authorities have made it difficult for them to leave. And the African Union has warned about restrictive policies that some have regarded as racist. In response, Ukrainian officials have said that assistance to women and children leaving the country is their priority. And in a tweet Tuesday evening, Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba said, open quotes, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has affected Ukrainians and non-citizens in many devastating ways. End of quote. He said, Africans seeking evacuations are our friends and need to have equal opportunities to return their home countries safely. Ukrainian government, he continued, spares no effort to solve the problem. For VOA News, I am Mugume, Davis Rakarinjini Kampala, Uganda. You're listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vunganyi. South Africa chose to abstain Wednesday when the United Nations General Assembly voted on a resolution calling on its BRICS partner, Russia, 
to withdraw its military forces from Ukraine. BRICS is the name of the economic partnership between Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. South Africa's UN ambassador defended the move, but some South Africans were unhappy with the decision. Vicky Stark reports from Cape Town, South Africa. South Africa was one of 17 African nations that abstained from voting on the resolution Wednesday. In a statement, South Africa's UN ambassador, Martu Joini, objected to the phrasing of the resolution, saying it does not create an environment conducive for diplomacy, dialogue and mediation. Political science professor Bekin Gomezulu said South Africa is also influenced by its historical ties to the former Soviet Union. There are a number of um, uh, South Africans, most of whom are now in government, who trained both in Russia and Ukraine. So they do have a relation with Ukraine. Uh, the majority of the people are of the view that uh, the liberation struggle was supported uh, uh, solely by Russia in terms of these two countries. But the reality of the matter is all the countries that were part of the USSR participated in terms of assisting the liberation struggle, not only in South Africa, but in Africa in general. The main opposition party in South Africa, the Democratic Alliance, released a statement condemning the country's stance. The party's shadow minister for international relations is Darren Bergman. We were shocked that uh, South Africa could abstain from such a vote. This is an opportune time for South Africa to take a stand and to assert itself on the international stage. He said considering how hard South Africans fought to end the racially oppressive system of apartheid and get the right to vote and how the international community helped them win their fight, they should have repaid the favour. Abstention or voting for Russia is pretty much the same language. It's a vote against Ukraine, it's a vote against peace and it's a, con- it's a condonation of violence that's currently taking place in Ukraine. Other South Africans added their voices to the chorus of disappointment, including analyst Ngome Zulu. Of course, uh, it doesn't paint the country in a positive light, more especially because uh, part of South Africa's foreign uh, policy agenda uh, is to uh, respect human rights. And then in this case, uh, it's clear that uh, uh, the human rights of the Ukrainians has been uh, affected. Ronnie Gotkin, who was out for an afternoon stroll in the summer sunshine, said he was outraged. I think it's pretty appalling. It's uh, not taking the moral stance. I understand that in the real world uh, there are politics and allies that sometimes morality should come out. In all, 141 nations voted in favour of the resolution. Five nations, including Russia, voted no and 35 abstained. Eritrea was the only African nation to vote with Russia. Vicky Stark for VOA News, Cape Town, South Africa. Anglophone separatists in Cameroon have claimed responsibility for an attack Wednesday that killed seven people, including a senior official and a mayor. Cameroon's military says the officials were on a tour to raise support against the rebels when a homemade bomb hit their car. Moki Edwin Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé. The Cameroon military says a homemade bomb exploded on Wednesday, killing the highest government official, mayor, a traditional ruler, and popular politician in the Ekondo Titi district in Cameroon's English-speaking southwest region. The government says the explosive device hit the official's car in Bekora village. The government says six officials, including Timote Aboloa, highest government official in Ekondo Titi, Nanji Kenneth, 
mayor of Ekondotiti, and Ebeku William, the Ekondotiti president of Cameroon's ruling Cameroon People's Democratic Movement Party, died on the spot. Cameroon's military said after the device exploded, separatist fighters hiding in a nearby bush started shooting heavily. Bernard Okalia Bilai is the governor of the southwest region. Bilai says several government troops sustained injuries and a military official died while being rushed to a local hospital by the military. Bilai spoke during a press conference broadcast by local media, including Cameroon State broadcaster CRTV. All the six occupants of the car died. The other forces of law were in the pickup following the GO car were wounded. One young officer, a lieutenant, was wounded and uh, he too passed away. So in that attack, we have lost seven persons. Eli said the officials were on a Meet the People tour of Ekondotiti. He said during the tour, the officials were expected to educate civilians on braving separatists and relaunch economic activities in their towns and villages. Bilai said the officials were also asking civilians to report suspected fighters hiding in their towns and villages. Cameroon's military on Thursday said troops were deployed to a Ekondotiti shortly after the explosion. The military said the troops will track and arrest or kill the fighters should government troops face any resistance from the rebels. Capo Daniel is the deputy defense chief of staff for the Ambazona Defense Forces, said to be the largest separatist group in Cameroon. Capo says separatists regret that one fighter has been missing since Wednesday's attack. He says no fighter was wounded and none were killed by government troops in the Ekondotiti attack, as reported by Cameroon military. Capo spoke to VOA via a messaging app. This operation is part of our liberation operations to end the Cameroon occupation and rule of Ambazonian territory. The divisional officer is in charge of coordinating Cameroon military operation and Cameroon occupation of Ambazonian territory. We will continue to battle and resist Cameroon rule of Ambazonia until the last Cameroon military is booted out of our territory. Cameroon separatists have been fighting since 2017 to carve out an independent English-speaking state in the majority French-speaking Cameroon. The separatists say their state will be called Ambazonia. Fighters have vowed to attack any worker sent by the central government in Yaoundé to the English-speaking western regions. The separatists say they will continue attacking government offices and staff until the central government withdraws its troops from the troubled Anglophone regions. The United Nations says the conflict has left more than 3,500 people dead and 750,000 displaced. Moki Edwin Kinzaka for VOA News, Yawundi, Cameroon. Daybreak Africa continues. ECOWAS regional group says that West African leaders have cancelled a planned trip to Burkina Faso to meet coup leader Paul Henry Damiba. They are instead sending a team of ministers in the coming days. Damiba, who was inaugurated on Wednesday as interim president for three years, 
led a coup that ousted President Rochkabore in January, saying that they were motivated by frustration about mounting violence by Islamist militants. And the Vatican has announced that Pope Francis will visit South Sudan in July, making a trip that he has repeatedly delayed due to security concerns in a country still emerging from a post-independence civil war. July will mark the 11th anniversary of South Sudan's secession from Sudan. It's now time for Daybreak Africa Sports with Samson O'Malley. And with that, let's go to Abuja. Good morning to you, Samson. Good Friday morning to you too, Jackson. We'll begin the sport with the confirmation of the dates, times and venues for the final round of the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 African qualifiers. After an intense round, we saw the participation of all 54 CAF member associations. Ten teams are still in contention for the five African places at the prestigious World Tournament. The first leg of the last round is scheduled for the 25th of March, 2022 while the second leg marches will be held on the 29th of March 2022, four days later. On the start, the materials in Kinshasa, it will be DR Congo hosting Morocco, while Mali will welcome Tunisia to the start to 26 miles in Bamako. Cameroon and Algeria will play their first leg march at the start to Japoma in Douala, while Egypt and Senegal will reenact the finals of the 2021 African Cup of Nations in Cameroon when they meet at the Cairo International Stadium in Cairo. Ghana will play Nigeria in the first leg at the Cape Coast Stadium in Cape Coast, Ghana. And in women's football, after a first round that saw the qualification of Eritrea, Kenya, DR Congo, Senegal and Bene, following the withdrawal of their respective opponents, the second qualifying round for the Under-17 Women's World Cup will take place during the weekends of March the 4th to the 6th and March 18th to the 20th, 2022. The first leg fixtures which will be played this weekend will see Uganda hosting Ethiopia at the St. Mary Stadium in Kampala, while Ghana will travel to to face Senegal. It will be Tanzania versus Botswana at the Amman Stadium in Zanzibar City, where Dia Congo will welcome Nigeria at the start of Matias in Kinshasa. Liberia will face Guinea, while Bene will host Morocco at the start Charles de Gaulle in Port Novo. Staying with football news, Amir Abdu has been named the new national team coach of Mauritania. Until his appointment, he led the Comoros national team to the last 16 at the just-concluded African Cup of Nations in Cameroon in February 2021. The 49-year-old tactician was appointed following the meeting of the executive committee of the Mauritania Football Federation. His appointment came just one week after resigning as the coach of Comoros after eight years in charge of the African Cup of Nations double taunts. And on a rather sad note, five Sudanese footballers who play for Al Malaha have reportedly drowned after their boat sank on the Nile River while on their way to a march. The boat capsized as the team was traveling from the city of Shendi in the northern river Nile state to El Mtam to face rivals Al Jarif, where the unfortunate incident occurred. And now to basketball news. The Tigress, Nigeria female national basketball team, have been drawn in Group B with France, Australia, Canada, Japan and Serbia ahead of the 2022 FIBA Women's World Cup campaign in Sydney, Australia in September. And that's it on Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, Jackson, in Washington. Thank you, Samson, and have a great weekend. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa.
Well, thank you for spending this morning with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voanews.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and on Facebook. We are also on YouTube where you can watch our videos. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington, wishing you a great weekend ahead, Africa. Hello, Africa. This is Peter Clot, host of VOA's Africa Weekend show, Nightline Africa. Tune in. You will be glad you did. Nightline Africa is a fast-paced, tightly edited news show designed to keep our listeners engaged from beginning to end. Nightline comes to you live from the Voice of America on the following shortwave frequencies, 6080 kilohertz, 49.3 meter band, and 15580 kilohertz, 19.2 meter band.